0: the Jewish Divorce Project. Because marriage doesn't always work out and chicken soup doesn't always help. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Jewish Divorce Project. It's a special episode today. We have our very first interview. Yeah.
1: We are joined
0: today with the amazing Keshet Star. Uh, I'll give a little bit about Keshet and then we will jump right into the topic of GET and Jewish divorce. Keshet is the CEO of an organization called ORA, which is the Organization for the Resolution of Agunot. It's a nonprofit organization addressing the Aguna crisis, which which Keshet will talk a little bit more about. At ORA, Keshet oversees the advocacy and early intervention initiatives designed to assist individuals seeking a Jewish divorce along with prevention initiatives to eliminate abuse from the Jewish divorce process which is unbelievable. Keshet does amazing work. I've worked with her personally. I have worked with her professionally. We're really happy to have you here, Keshet.
2: I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. This is awesome.
0: So can you tell us a little bit um, about what Aura is and what Aura does
1: Absolutely. So we actually were founded in 2002 as a student club. So we've come a long way since then, but I think we still have that rooting in grassroots advocacy. And basically our goal is to take abuse out of the Jewish divorce process. We don't want the Jewish divorce to be used as a weapon, as a tool of extortion, as a way to control other people. And the way we avoid that from happening is by really offering a series of programs and interventions at different points along the spectrum. So we work on active cases where someone's trying to get a get, pun intended, and are having difficulty. We also run a helpline where people call if they're thinking about divorce or in the early stages and just want to know what to do first. I think what's so hard about this issue is that dealing with the civil divorce process is really messy and complicated. And dealing with the Jewish divorce comp dealing with the Jewish divorce process is also messy and complicated and trying to do both at once is sometimes a disaster and so helping people come up with a coherent strategy is really important and then going back a step further what we really want to do is create a culture where get refusal really can't flourish and we do that by offering a lot of educational programming to all different audiences, everywhere from high school students to college students to shul communities, rabbinic associations, college teachers, people who work with brides, really a huge range of audiences. And we really want to explain the connection between get refusal and domestic abuse and also advocate for preventative measures, like signing a halakhic prenup, which can really make a difference both for individual couples, but also for communities and really stopping these cases in their tracks before they have a chance to develop into full get refusal situations.
0: Can you just describe briefly what is the get and what get refusal
1: means? Definitely. So, a get is a Jewish divorce. It's totally separate from a civil divorce. So, the judgment of divorce that you get from a court has absolutely nothing to do with the get itself. And basically, in order to be able to remarry and to move on with your life under Jewish law, you need to have this get. And without it, even if you've been civilly divorced for 20 years, you're still considered just as married as you were when you stood under the chuppah on your wedding day. And so it's really a fundamental step for those who are looking to live in the traditional Jewish community and start new relationships within this community.
0: So I have I have a question, and I'm going to speak a little bit personally about my own experiences. And this is how I first connected with Keshet and Ora, is that I had difficulty getting my get, and I found that there seemed to be two categories for men. And I think at some point we will address that there are women who refuse to receive a get. So this does go both ways, although it's predominantly something that men withhold more than women refuse to withhold. Um, And so I find that. And I'm, I'm curious about this. In my own estimation, there seem to be two categories of men who do this. One is the real narcissistic, abusive, manipulative man who will give the get really under no circumstances and is just out to destroy his wife, seek revenge, gain whatever advantage he can. And then the other man, which I think might be more common, is just somebody who's given a power card and wants mm. to use it to their advantage in a situation where they're feeling scared, vulnerable, afraid of the outcome and hey, they have this card that they can use, so why not use it when there's so many things that are at stake and so many and so much that they're afraid of losing.
2: Mm.
0: So, I found I think I was in the second category. I don't consider my ex to be, you know, a narcissistic abusive man. I think he was given a power card that he used to his advantage and at some point I tried to keep it very private for a while. I didn't want this to be public. At some point it did become more public and the community got involved and a lot a lot of the feedback that I heard from people, people it became very segmented and polarizing. You know, you take a side. You're you're very you're asking society and the community to take a side. And the other side that I would get back is He'll give it when you get your civil divorce. You know, just be patient, and that this is divorce, and divorce is, you know, a dissolution of everything, and the get is part of that process. So you're not an aguna, and at whatever point he'll give it when everything's done. So what what is your response and your experiences with with the different different differentiation between the two types? And and yes, Noam has a question.
2: I just I wanted to add we use the word aguna, which means chained woman, and so if a man doesn't give the get to his wife then she is chained to him, right? The get acknowledged. as Well, that's, as that's said. actually
0: complicated also. You know, it's sure. like what, that's, an, that's, a, that's actually a very longer conversation of what qualifies you to get that categorization of an At okay. what point there's no timeline. There's no Jewish law timeline that if you're not living together for three weeks, you need to give the get at this point. And that's an argument that's argued, I think, a lot by men. Is that I'll give it, I'll give it. You know, like we just moved out two months ago. We just—it's uh, just give me any time to—I uh, time to acclimate. You know, I'm gonna give it. And so, at what point does it become get refusal? At what point are you considered an aguna? I knew we th- we threw a lot at you at there at you, Keshet, So whatever you picked up from there,
1: absolutely. These are all such important questions. So in terms of the two types of cases. I guess what I'll say as an introduction is that I really do believe that the act of withholding a get is a form of abuse. It's an inappropriate abuse of power in the process. That being said, I think it's really interesting to look at that bigger pattern. Is this an abusive relationship and the get is just one more opportunity to control the other person? Or is this a different kind of relationship? And I will say when it comes to the advocacy work that we do, which for us, these are the most extreme cases that are taking the longest to resolve, over 90% of those cases do have a prior history of domestic abuse, whether it's mm. physical, it's other forms of abuse. Mm. So power and control is really the landscape of the relationship. Mm. And absolutely in that situation, if someone's entire goal throughout the relationship is to control the other person, mm. and now they have this get, they're not, not going to use it. It's too good of an opportunity. So I think you do have these sort of classic abusers and narcissists who see the get as sort of the golden ticket to get what they've always wanted, which is control. I do believe, though, that there are other cases that actually could have gone in either direction. So we hear a lot at Ora, it takes two to tango. I don't believe that's true. I think if you have a very enthusiastic tangoer on the other side, you are tangoing. That's not always the choice. Um, So in that sense, one bad actor can absolutely lead to an eight-year-long divorce process. But I also think that there are cases where if the couple is able to get the right intervention and guidance early in the divorce, it really can change what the divorce is going to look like. So the abusive divorce might always be this long, drawn-out process because that's how the relationship's been. The divorce isn't going to be any different. But I think it is possible in other cases for a divorce to go in a very contentious, antagonistic direction or not. And part of what we really advocate for at ORA is giving the get as early as possible. Because you never know how divorce is going to develop. Sometimes everyone's feelings a year into the process are really different than they were two months in. And the earlier you can deal with the get, the better. And we don't take chances with seeing how the rest of the divorce ends up developing. In terms of, you know, he's going to give it at the end of the civil. We hear this all the time and we have a lot of circular conversations about this at Ora. So I was actually speaking to someone very recently about a current Ora case and they said, you have this wrong. He really wants to give a get. He just wants to give it at the end of the symbol. And I said, well, the thing is, it's great that he wants to give a get, but he has already chosen to wait over three or four years to give one And when a Bethden or a religious court ordered him to give one, he said no, so they issued a contempt order against him. And when we at ORA told him we were going to have no choice but to publicize his case if he didn't give a get, he still chose not to give one. So that's actually a pretty high level of commitment to get refusal. He has risked and given up a lot of things in order to hold on to this get. So obviously it means something that you'll hear a lot of, I'm not using the get as leverage, I just want to hold on to it. Okay, well, if it's not leverage, then why not give it today? What are you losing? And I think what it is for many people, it's the insurance policy. It's that final wild card that they can just keep in their back pocket and worse comes to worse if they're really not happy with how that divorce shakes out with what the settlement looks like or what the judicial order looks like they can pull out the wild card and renegotiate. And it might not even be conscious for everyone, but I think there is this feeling that if I hold on to this piece, I have an insurance policy. I'm safe. I feel a sense of security that no matter what other people decide, I have this thing that I can use. And the other person knows it. And that's why it's so problematic. But really, The best way to make sure that the get is not used as a tool of extortion is to give it as early as possible, because once you hold it till the end of the process, there's always the possibility that it's used in the negotiations or that it's used afterwards. The judge said, we're going to split the house 50-50. If you want your get, we're going to split the house 80-20. And that happens all the time. And so the safest way for everyone is really to make sure that it's done early. Because, and I think especially sometimes in our community, we're nervous talking about divorce, but more comfortable thinking about children. But especially when we think about children, we want divorce settlements to be made fairly. We want everyone to walk out of that process with a settlement, in order, a plan that is realistic and that's healthy for the adults and the children involved. And when the decisions are made with this extortion dynamic, we're probably not getting a great result. We're not coming out of that process with a resolution that's going to keep these parents and these children happy and safe and able to really start a new chapter effectively. And so it's really, really problematic. And again, there are many people out there who feel it's okay to wait till the end of the civil, but especially when it's being refused, when it's being openly used as a manipulation tactic, we really don't want that happening if we care about families post-divorce and what their opportunities are. Mm.
0: I so I know that Ora has taken a multi-directional approach to dealing with the issue of not just get, but also Jewish divorce. And you do a lot of work in all realms of of you know dealing specifically with the get refusal, but also what I love is your approach of prevention um, and education, that you go into high schools and you talk about healthy relationships, healthy divorce, signs of domestic abuse, which it is so important to take that back step and to give our our youth the tools that they will probably statistically (laughs) need at some at some point. My my question that that I'd love for you to go into and and I can piggyback a little bit off your answer is what you work, you work hand in hand with so many women. And for anybody listening, Aura has actually just started a support group for women, an online support group. um, That's really great. Zoom has really opened up a lot of opportunities for women connecting because you don't have that many women in one community where it's such a di- dispersed community and it's a, it's a way to bring people together to give each other support. So if you want more information, we'll give more information about that. But I'd love for you to speak to the experience of, of what it's been like working with these women, what they're experiencing, what you see they're, they're going through, just to educate the community of what, it, what it's like to be on that end.
1: Absolutely, And it's what's so challenging about the get. And one thing we hear a lot at ORA, well, there's lots of problems in divorce and the civil process is messy. And, you know, this happens and that happens. And it's all true. What's different about a get is that a get can go on indefinitely. So we have a case we're working on at ORA where the couple separated in 1974 and there is still no get. And I am not doing math quickly enough to calculate that number, but that's a big number. It's too long. We don't need yes, math. That is way too long of a number. And yes, that's an extreme outlier, but people know that it's it's this open-ended possibility. And what that does is it creates an enormous amount of fear. What if I never get this? What if I spend the rest of my life stuck in limbo because I'm never able to obtain again? And I've spoken over the years to women who are still married, who are you know, in their homes, in their marriages, in abusive situations, and they will say, I told my husband I wanted a divorce, and he said, good luck because I'm never going to give you a get, so why bother? You're never going to be able to leave anyway. And so the fear of the get being delayed is so profound, it impacts people's decisions to leave in the first place. And it actually can really impact their decision-making in the divorce. There was a study out of Bar-Ilan University that looked at divorce cases in Israel. They studied how many Jewish women going through divorce were afraid of the get. And then they looked at how many settlements deviated from the law to the women's disadvantage. So how afraid are people and how much are they giving up on the table? And I'm so curious to see what those numbers would look like in the United States, but but I imagine they would be pretty similar because I've spoken to many women that will say, as long as I have my kids and my get, I don't care about anything else, which is great, except that you need money to live. And if you're coming out of a marriage with no money and no degree and no way to support yourself, it is really hard to survive afterwards. And we really see that. So I think that sense of fear and how much that drives decision-making is really powerful. There's also the factor that we live in a community that is often very category-based, right? You're at the singles table or the marrieds table, or you're here, you're there. And when you're in Aguna, you're not anywhere. You're in this sort of no man's land where you don't fit in any category. You're not in a healthy marriage, but you also don't have this light at the end of the tunnel or the possibility of starting something new. So there's a limbo and a sense of you don't know where you fit in and the community doesn't know what to do with you. And that's so painful. And I guess the uh, last Kesha,
0: thing that the, your community doesn't really know what to do with you once you're divorced either, <laughs> but,
1: but Regardless it's better.
2: true or <laughs> not.
1: And I but, think we struggle with that, right? What happens if happily ever after looks a little different? Mm-hmm. What do we do with that? And I don't, I don't think we know the answer, but we have to figure it out because I think as communities our true value. And the I think the way God judges us is how we do on the margins. You know, the people who are, are having sort of in easy fairy tale experience we don't have to work hard to accommodate and integrate those people but what happens when things don't go as planned and how do we still have a rich community where people can be fully involved in that situation and i guess the last thing i'll say is that i've one of the great things about my job is that i also get to speak with people and work with people once they have their get so just as with you sheva but um one thing that women have said to me over and over once they get it is that I didn't realize how much it was impacting me until it was gone. That it was almost like this cartoon like thundercloud that sort of follows you wherever you go. And once it's clear, you almost only then become aware of how constricted you felt and how much it kind of loomed over your, your sense of optimism, your sense of having a future. That's and interesting. so- yeah, I, I, the always opposite. Find that really I had the opposite
0: experience. Day. Yeah, it was, it was so all consuming. It was ex- very, you, you, you described it very well, this looming sense of fear and anxiety of just this, the unknown, right? And that really is the definition of anxiety is this fear of the unknown. You don't know what's going to happen. And when you have so much of your life out of your control, you wake up each day and it's just sitting there. It is like this black cloud. And people were telling me, you know, I, I did think at the end of the day, my ex was going to give it at the civil. I, I, I had faith in that, except the civil was dragging on and on. But there was a lot of erratic behavior that people were telling me a part of the get is it has to be given of sound mind, right? And there, and if, 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 if there's questionable mental states that, that may make it of not sound mind, so that wouldn't be a valid get. So that was in my mind of like, what's considered a breakdown? What's considered not sound mind? Like maybe you know, maybe it will. he'll get to a place where he won't be halakhically kosher enough to give me the get. So there, there was this tremendous amount of fear that for me felt so consuming when I was in it. And when I got my get, I felt so numb. It, I mean, I was so happy, but it was all of a sudden this removal, like so much, it had, it had sucked up so much energy and so much of my emotional fortitude that when it was gone, it was this vacuum. It was this big Now what? Now what do I fill in that vacuum that has consumed my life for almost two years? And so it was really the opposite of just feeling numb from the experience of it.
1: No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think people do react so differently. And that that loss of control is huge. And one thing I'll add as well, because people don't always understand this and judges and lawyers often don't understand this. It's not really about remarriage, even though, of course, that's part of it. And you want to have the opportunity to remarry. Part of it is about just having control over one of the most intimate statuses and decisions of your life. And we actually at Ora have worked on several cases over the years with women who were terminally ill, and one of the most important things to them was to get their get before they passed away. And in these cases, remarriage was not on the table, but it, it was never—it's never really about that. It's about being free in this really basic and profound way, and having this autonomy and agency over who you are getting to decide if you're someone's wife or not someone's wife, that that is such a, a deeply personal status and a deeply personal decision and to have control taken away from you about something so intimate and so central to your identity is really devastating. And to know that that control could continue potentially indefinitely. And again, you have no idea. And so it, it really compounds that lack of control. And I think that is different about the civil process. The civil process can be very, very bad, but you will not be litigating your civil divorce for 12 years, even in the worst divorce. I've seen some go to like eight or nine, maybe 10. But um, even in the worst divorce, there is going to be an endpoint whether the other person likes it or not. But with this, it doesn't work that way. And that, for that reason, I think the impact is so profound and so devastating for people.
0: So, so, so true. Maybe you can share with us some of the proactive things that that Aura does um, to mitigate this challenge in the community.
1: Definitely. So I will say a bunch of things that kind of come in at different time points. First of all, I really feel that defining get refusal as an act of domestic abuse is fundamental because without that, you get a lot of condoning and excusing. And I actually, when I started at Aura, I was a case advocate, I worked with Sheva, and I would speak with get refusers all the time. And what was so interesting is that many of the conversations would start with them complimenting me. They would say, oh, you're from Aura. They're such a great organization. I gave you $18 like 10 years ago. You guys are awesome, you know? And get refusal, it's so terrible. You really got to get those jerks. You go. Now, in my case, it's a little different. If you knew my ex-wife, you'd understand, et cetera, et cetera. And I had this conversation all the time. So if we open up the possibility that get refusal is okay some of the time, or it's okay if your ex is really a jerk, or it's okay if you really feel wronged, everyone feels like they're in that category. And as human beings, we don't really have the ability to be 100% objective about conflicts that we are actively engaged in while we're actively engaged in them. That's not something that that we always or often have. And so when you open the door to get refusal is not nice, but hey, sometimes you got to do what you got to do, every single person is running to go into that loophole. So by defining it as abusive, we really cut out those loopholes. There's no rule that you can't beat your wife except for if she's really obnoxious and then go for it. It doesn't work that way. It's a a red line, you cannot do it. And the other really helpful thing about using that language is that it also makes the issue accessible outside the Orthodox community. We have get refusers that are not observant anymore and their friends and family are not in the observant community. We are often in a position of trying to explain to the legal system what in the world this religious mumbo jumbo is and why they should care about it. And so using that language of domestic abuse and framing it as an example of power and control also makes it an accessible issue to people who really need to be able to understand it. And the other factor, so again, get refusal, domestic abuse, I think that's huge, and really creating communities where we're not okay with get refusal. And the other element, of course, is prevention work, and especially the halachic prenup. So for anyone that's not familiar, never heard of this, this is not like a Hollywood prenup where you, you know, protect all your financial assets. This is totally different. It's just about the Jewish divorce and Jewish law. And basically what it does is a couple signs it before they get married. You can also sign it as a post-nuptial. So if you're already married, you can still sign it. And what it ensures is that in the event that there is a refusal to cooperate with the get, whoever doesn't want to give the get has to pay the other spouse a certain amount of money every day to represent their support obligation under Jewish law. So the basic idea is that in Jewish law, if you want to stay married, i.e. not cooperate with the divorce, great, stay married. But marriage in Judaism comes with responsibilities and not just rights. And so this is your responsibility. You have to support your spouse.
0: So how does it work in the halachic prenup in terms of a timeline? At what point does it kick in that the money is owed?
1: Yes, yeah, So there are different versions of the prenup that are all triggered in different ways, but generally it's triggered by a notice. So someone contacts the bethden because this prenup directs you to a specific Bethon or religious court, and you notify the bethden that I'd like to have a get. The Bethton will then reach out to the other side. If the other person says, I'm not doing this, or I shouldn't have to give the get right now. I want to wait till XYZ. They will sometimes schedule a hearing where they will talk about that question of the timing of the get. And after the hearing, they'll issue a ruling. But the important thing to realize with the prenup is that a successful prenup never involves money changing hands. That if you're actually paying out money, that's not a good prenup because what you really want the prenup to do is encourage a get. And the reason the prenup has been very successful, and we've seen at this point many divorces with the prenup, is that it pushes the get to one of the first orders of business. So rather than delaying the get for sort of the final wrap up, it brings the get up very early, which avoids a lot of the game playing and extortion that can come up later. In addition, the prenup sends you to a particular Bethton which no one is ever excited about, except that in these cases, couples can spend years negotiating which Bethden they're going to go to and on what issues. And that can add an extended amount of time to the process. And so the fact that you've chosen this beforehand really saves it. But
0: I think that- question, Yes, question. I know that in a regular situation when you're trying to get a get, that there's you have to be called to based in three times in order to be considered refusing based in, and in contradiction. Is that the same case with the prenup?
1: So not necessarily, because they will push for a hearing much earlier. And the hearing is really helpful because it puts everyone in a room together. And nine out of 10 times, by the time they leave that hearing, the get's been given. So the hearing also is an opportunity for everyone to be there in person and actually facilitate a get. And just to share as an example, I worked on a case once where we had a prenup, but no one had a copy of it. Like the rabbi's study had burned down and like she didn't have a copy. And the husband was outright using the get as a negotiating tool, like not being subtle about it. And he was working with a Toain or a rabbinic advocate. And I was speaking with the toin, and I was, and the towing's going on and on. If she wants to get, she has to do this, she has to do that. And I was careful with my language and I said, well, you know, they signed a halachic prenup and the towing goes, oh, they signed a prenup. Okay, fine. We'll do it on Thursday. And that was it. (laughs) (laughs) We were really excited because like we did not have this prenup, but also it just demonstrates how it just takes it off the table. If you wanted to use the get as leverage, sorry and some people believe me are very disappointed because they're like no no, no I want to use this as leverage to get what I want in the divorce and we're like right but you gave up that opportunity by signing this document. Um so they might be disappointed about that but it really takes it off the table and it just changes the incentives, the timing, the expectations, all of that.
0: So you you brought up a point that's really interesting is that what is your experience experience with the enablers within the community, so that a Toen, who is a religious representative—that—that—that—that that, that, that sounds like a lawyer response to me. Like, oh God, now my client's not going to get what he <laughs> wants. Rather than somebody who's representing the Jewish aspect of it to really prioritize morality and ethics. So, what have you found with the rabbis that you work with and other to- toanim? <laughs> What's the plural? <laughs> um, and other other influential people in the community.
1: So I'll say for the divorce industry specifically, I I think it's important that you're doing this podcast because it can use a little more morality and ethics, not just to be Pollyanna-ish, but I actually really don't believe that unnecessarily contentious divorces are helpful for people. No one got more time with their kids because their divorce was extra nasty. Like that's not usually how it works out in the long term. When it comes to rabbinic leadership, I think it's growing and changing. And I really feel that education is the key because without this framework of understanding domestic abuse, understanding why a get is different than some other tools in a divorce, it's really easy to just get sucked in into what people are telling you. And especially if you're talking about abusers and narcissists, they're some of the loveliest people to chat with that you will find anywhere. Um, And so seeing through that can be very difficult. And even if you're talking about sort of a toxic divorce process, but not necessarily an abusive individual, it's easy to feel sympathetic for someone who's in pain and struggling and really feels like this get is their solution to making sure they don't get completely messed over. And so I think it's natural to feel sympathy for that. And that's why we need that kind of policy education where you might feel bad for Bob, but if we let Bob use the get as leverage, what happens to us as a community? What happens to the integrity of this process? And is that something that we want to happen?
0: So I actually had a cousin who was getting divorced around the same time that I was, I think after, and he had a fantastic story and I knew him personally. He was a sweetheart of a guy is and his ex took full custody of their child and claimed that he was abusive and maybe even sexually abusive. And those they were false claims. And he was withholding the get till he got custody back. And it's a very, very sympathetic story. But because I had gone through my own experience and I never would have taken this stance if I had not experienced it myself, I had that bottom line attitude of your story is really tragic. You are getting screwed here for sure. But you, you cannot be the, the, the um, what's the word, the exception, right? There's just, everybody believes that they're the exception, whether they are or they aren't. But the only, I only was able to take that side because I had gone through it myself. And so that's why I think this education aspect is so important to really get the word out there that it is it is a form of of abuse and it's not acceptable because we cannot give that allowance under any circumstance like that is also for better or for worse. The nature of the Jewish community is that we do things as a community for the sake of the greater good, not on an individualized basis. And you know what? That's kind of token. It's, It's par for the course. You want to be in? This, this, is, this is the price is that we look at the big picture and we do things as community oriented.
1: And it's policy work in a way that no case is an island, no case stands on its own without impacting other cases. And one thing I do believe is that every policy has some losers. That you are sometimes going to have a policy that might in a particular case impact someone negatively. But when we think about policy, we have to think about what's best for the community at large. And the reality also is that in a situation where there are sexual abuse allegations, there are other things going on, it's really difficult to resolve a situation like that outside of the legal system. So I feel like these are also areas where we're kind of misplacing the advocacy. We're trying to bring in the get as a solution when what we really need to do is look at the legal process, look at access to good representation, look at if this is an issue that really needs to be resolved in a courtroom, how do we make that process better? But it, it's really an issue of the legal process and how fair and just that is, as opposed to the get, because we can't really determine sexual abuse allegations sitting in our living rooms or sitting in a religious court. Like these are not the right forums, and the costs of getting it wrong are so high that you usually need the sort of powers and resources that the courts have. So we see that as well. Some I will 100% say that the court and legal system is broken in many respects, but in the places where it's broken, we need to fix it. Bringing the get in just makes it even more of a mess. It doesn't solve what's ever broken. It doesn't solve the broken aspects of the legal process and it doesn't help the community at large.
0: I I don't want to end this conversation without talking about the flip side even briefly. men who are on the receiving end of this and what that has been like for you, what that looks like even, how is that possible and what resources you offer, if any, to men who are in this situation?
1: Absolutely, so a get has to be willingly given and willingly received. So the willingly received part is rabbinic, the willingly given part is from the Torah, but either way to have a legitimate process, it has to be given and received. And while there are halachic tools out there for men whose wives will not accept to get, so there's something called a hetzer mer-rabanin, which can allow a man to essentially marry a second wife, they are very sketchy and very expensive. So if you are not a particularly sketchy or wealthy person, that's not a great alternative for you, actually. And so there are absolutely situations where the get is abusively with, where essentially the wife will refuse to receive the get, and it's abused just the same way, and it's often done in similar contexts. I want something out out of the divorce, or I'm angry and I'm punishing you, and this is my opportunity to do that. And we absolutely work on those cases. I will say about 95% of our cases are women trying to obtain a get, but 5% of our cases are men who want to give a get, have given a get, and there's an issue with the wife receiving the get. And so we offer parallel services. It's not that we only work with one gender or the other, the same set of tools that we make available to Agunot are also available to Agunim, which is the term for men in that situation. So I would really encourage anyone dealing with that to call us. And again, you don't have to be in like an extreme, really late stage situation to call us, the earlier the better. And sometimes what we do is just explain, this is what a GET is. This is what the implications of giving it or not giving it are. This is where you can sign a GET near you if you live in some remote or random location, Um, all that type of basic information. And so people are, are welcome to call really at any stage.
0: What advice do you have for women or men listening who are at the beginning stages or later stages of their divorce?
1: I will say, just reach out for help before you make decisions that are unchangeable. I think a lot of times people feel an urgency to do something. I'm just gonna go ahead and sign a retainer with an attorney. I'm just gonna go ahead and file something in court. I'm gonna go ahead and sign this arbitration agreement to a Bethden. And a lot of our advice is really just holding off that better to spend six months debating which Befton you're going to go with, than sign it in five minutes and spend six years wishing you hadn't been so quick to sign. So really take your time to get the information. And if the Jewish divorce is extremely important to you, make sure that you're getting advice that incorporates the Jewish divorce piece. Because what's so hard about this is that your average attorney has no idea what a get does or how it works or how the best in works. And your average rabbinic guidance person doesn't know that much about the matrimonial and family law system. And so you're often getting these competing streams of advice that don't work together. But there are professionals out there who know both, Whether it's an attorney who's also familiar with aspects of the GET, whether it's us, a lot of what we do on our cases is speak to people's attorneys and try and create a strategy that will meet anyone's needs. But if the GET is important to you, you really need to be proactive and advocate for yourself and make sure you're getting information that's targeted to the GET because it's a very different process than the rest of the legal proceedings and you're going to need different advice.
0: Quick question without going too much into it, but have you found the GET law? I know that New York and Toronto, and I think maybe LA have a GET law where you don't have standing in court, in civil court, unless you've given the GET. Has that been effective?
1: So the GET laws, when they apply, are effective. So in New York State, there's two GET laws. One connects more to property division. But the first get law basically says that whoever filed for divorce has to sign an affidavit noting that they've removed all barriers to remarriage. So if you're the one that filed, it doesn't kick in and it's not necessarily so helpful. Plus it comes in at the end of the process, which means that you still have that opportunity for inappropriate negotiation extortion. That being said, I don't believe even as much as I love the halachic prenup and advocate for it. I don't believe that there is one magic bullet that's going to resolve this issue because it's so complicated. And so I think having a toolbox with a lot of tools in it is the best way to go. And the GET law and other proposed forms of GET legislation, they can be a helpful tool to have in the toolbox that for the right case can be a game changer. And for some cases, it won't apply at all, but for some, it can make all the difference.
0: Do you know offhand which states have a GET law? Currently, only
1: New York. Um, New York has two. Other states have attempted to pass them. And so if anyone's interested in learning more, we do have a lot of information. We have a lot of copies of proposed legislation in different jurisdictions. The challenge in getting GET laws to be passed are that on one hand, you have a lot of constitutional concerns. And on the other hand, Jewish law is not always so thrilled to have civil authorities Mm -hmm. dictating what should happen on a religious matter. So trying to get something that passes the test, both constitutionally and in terms of getting support within the Jewish community is really difficult to do. Um,
2: So uh, it's wonderful that you speak of the get as not only just a procedure in the process of Jewish divorce, right? And also civil, how they impact one another in that way. I also really like how you're using the word as get as a tool, right? As as something that can be really helpful in that way. And I'm also particularly interested in knowing if you've seen any type of, well, spiritual impact uh, that people have received when they get a get when it actually comes to fruition you know there's the divorce right and you sign those papers and whatever happens to you on those day when you sign those papers and then there's the get and what happens spiritually to the person when they receive it
1: it's a really powerful question and i think this is definitely an area that's very subjective people will say really different things in terms of how they experience it For some people, it really is experienced as sort of like, I'm spiritually separate from this person now. And there's a real sense of separation and being able to move on. And I actually read a story recently by someone who felt like they they got divorced. They kept getting back together and separating and getting back together and separating. They actually were not an observant couple. And they ended up deciding to do a get because they thought it might help and never got back together again. And it wasn't a healthy relationship. They kept sort of coming back together and going apart and coming back together and going apart. And the get for them was that sort of ceremonial ending that they needed in order to really be able to live separate lives and start new relationships. But I think an interesting aspect of this whole thing is that get refusal is A form of domestic abuse, but I think more specifically it's a form of spiritual abuse it's taking sort of something that's part of faith and spirituality and turning it into a weapon. And the experience of being on the receiving end of that is really complicated and a lot of you know women and men in this situation do report feeling alienated from God alienated from the spiritual community as a result of this and so. It's terrible to be hurt in any way by someone that that you loved and that you had a life with, but when the tool that's hurting you is your religion and your faith, that has a really profound impact and it makes it harder to get the support from the community that you hopefully would be getting otherwise. And so there's a real spiritual impact to all of this and it really impacts people's sense of self and meaning and how they connect to the world. And um, I don't know. I think it's a very particular kind of trauma. And I actually think that's part of why it's so important that as a religious community, we're working on this because it's a spiritual problem in some respects, and it needs a spiritual solution. It's not enough to have legal solutions. I think there need to be voices coming from a spiritual perspective saying, no, this is not Torah, and this is not Judaism, and this act does not speak for us, to really reinforce to, you know, the survivor of this situation that, you know, this isn't Judaism, and that this is sort of a bad act as opposed to a bad system, which can feel really different to experience.
0: So I actually, when going through it, coined, I don't know if I was the originator of the term, but I called it religious trauma. And what I found was it was this almost Stockholm syndrome type of experience where you do take a step back and look at it as if it's the religion that's doing this to you, right? As I said, it's a power tool that some people can't resist. But who's really responsible is the religious system. And yet, so many people told me, why do you care? Who cares? Go date, do whatever you want. Why, why does it matter? And then it's you want to be part of the community. You want to respect the process and the system, but it's the system that's holding you captive. And it's you're stuck in this experience of it. But it, for me, at least, and for many people that I spoke with, it has a very large impact on your spiritual experience and on your respect for the system it's 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 very hard. And I think that what you said, that spiritual trauma or spiritual abuse is a very evocative and powerful way to describe it.
1: And one thing I'll add as well is that it's not just Judaism, in that you look at any religion that has a faith-based divorce divorce process, and especially in situations where there's a history of domestic abuse, that process is manipulated. And so, and we actually have seen that the GET law in New York State is also used in many Muslim divorce cases, Mm -hmm. because the Muslim community has sort of, in some ways, similar structures around divorce and religious arbitration and some parallel systems. And so, I think anywhere where you find a religious divorce process and you're in a community where religion matters, The average abuser is going to use it because they're going to use what works. And if this is your identity, this is your, the lens through which you understand the world and you understand meaning, it's almost certainly going to be part of the abuse. And it's almost certainly going to have a spiritual impact on you as you experience it. So it's, it's something that that really happens pretty globally that we don't talk about very much, but that we really should because there, there's so much commonality and there's so much to learn in terms of working with survivors of abuse in all different religious communities.
0: There is so much here that we can explore. I think we're going to have to have you back on for another episode because I'd love to get more into the shame-based internal processes of that lead to this kind of abuse. But I think that's another conversation. Great. My, 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 What I'd like to put out is because you are, because ORA has created this um, approach that is trying to really, really engage the community. What is your ask of the community? What can people do to help?
1: We want people to care. We want people to realize that agunote are just like you. They're not like other people living on an island somewhere. Um, they're your siblings and kids and parents and they could really be you and i think sometimes there's this othering that we do especially if something makes us nervous that we have to resist and so we want communities to care and we want communities to know that there are really small easy things that you can do that are a game changer on this issue so having a community education event and we're pretty you know nice and funny and we we make it really i think a good experience for communities and not something you know, dark and scary and Schindler's list we'd really try not to, and, um, and signing a prenup or signing a postnup or just having a conversation with someone, engage- with someone who's engaged, are you doing that prenup thing? It can be the smallest things, but that with everyone being willing to do a tiny little thing, it changes the world, it makes a difference. And I will say, as we've done more and more prenup education in the modern orthodox community, We're not really getting cases in the modern Orthodox community. It's less and less and less over time because it's just not worth it. These are communities where it's such a pain to be a get refuser and everyone's going to make it so awkward that you just don't even want to bother and that's really the power of community that we get to set the culture that we live in and by taking really small steps we can create really powerful changes that absolutely change people's lives for the better And, you know, we create a better community for our kids to grow up in. And what's better than that?
0: Do you know, there's this story, I don't know all the details, but it was in the 80s in Edmonton, Canada, where there was a get refusal in the community and the the women of the community banded together and refused to go to the mikvah until the issue was resolved. And magically, (laughs) there was a lot of incentive for the men of the community to really push him to give a get. And I think it was given within the week or something very very quickly. So I love that story. I've yeah. heard
1: that before and you know and so, what we oh go ahead.
0: No I think that that Rabbi Brander of Boca did something similar. I don't remember the details of his story but he also used this aspect of community to really push this issue.
1: I was going to say we had a case where the husband and his family went for Rosh Hashanah to a particular neighborhood. They've been going there for years Every single shul agreed not to give them any honors in the service when they went. They including, went sh-
0: including the man's father. You mean including yes, other including relatives? father's
1: brothers, the whole wow. family, because they were all supporting the get refuser. They went from shul to shul, did not get a single honor. It was really awkward. Mm-hmm. And the get was given within a week. And so again, it, wow. these situations work best when everyone bands together. We actually had a case recently over COVID. We went public on a case on social media. Within 24 hours, there was a get. Um, people don't like it when the community stands up. And in that case, the ask is so simple. Just share it on your Facebook profile or on your Instagram and share the flyer. That's it. That's all you have to do. And we had hundreds of people doing it. And this guy was getting phone calls from like, you know, kids who he had been in school with in seventh grade saying, like, what's going on? Why are you not giving this get? And he gave it. So community pressure and communities banding together. It doesn't have to be a big ask on anyone's part, but if everyone does this sort of very baseline step, it really changes things.
0: I have a question that it might be putting you on the spot, but I'd love to end. Go for it. What was the strangest excuse you heard for not giving a get?
1: Oh my goodness. I would say I had someone who just thought he was still married. What does that mean? <laughs> he was like, No, we're still together. And I'm like, No, you're really not. I can send you your judgment of divorce if you want to see it. And then he's like, Come for Shabbos. So and so will make her famous Kugel. Were they so living probably, together? No, Kogel. not for not for a very long time. Wow.
2: Yeah. So that was pretty strange. Kugel okay. changes everything.
1: Yeah.
0: It does. The power it does. Of Kogel,
2: like,
1: right? Thank you for the
2: Shabbos invitation.
1: <laughs> but, you know, we still have the get? work to do. He did give one, actually. Okay. Amazingly. But yes, yeah. I'm trying to think if there are any other good. There are definitely a lot of interesting ones, but that one stands out.
0: You should, you should consider um, compiling them. Like a nice a book, like a, a coffee table book from Ora. <laughs>
2: oh, Aguna Island.
1: Right, We've definitely got a few over COVID of like, I don't believe in Zoom. So <laughs> until we can meet in person, I'm not available. And we're like, everyone uh, believes in Zoom now. <laughs> Sorry. That's we'll give you a tech tutorial if you need one, but we're Wonderful. still going to have a hearing Wonderful. and it's still going to move forward.
0: Thank you so much, Kesha. How Thank can you. people get in touch with you or Aura and yeah. get the resources that they might need? Or, or consider donations, right? Aura can always use donations.
1: We can, we are actually a tight budget, small staff organization trying to make a big change. So we really appreciate all support. You can find us at www.getora.org. Www.getora, and on that website, you can find information on how to give, on how to get involved and be notified when we have a case, a social media campaign, anything like that. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever social media handle you prefer. And through our website, you can also get information on how to contact us directly. And whatever questions you have, or if you just want to, you know, your sister's in a complicated situation and you're nervous about it, everyone is so welcome to call. And we hope that we're able to give you some information and guidance and referrals and help you get to the next step. Wow,
0: thank you so much, Kesha. That was phenomenal. Um, Thank really you wonderful. For
1: having me.
2: Very cool. Thank you for sharing all this information. You can also reach us if uh, anyone's listening, as we know you are. Please feel free to reach us at the Jewish Divorce Project at gmail.com or uh, the Jewish Divorce Project, com is our website. And you can also find us at the Jewish Divorce Project on Instagram and Facebook as well.
0: Kesha that was amazing 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 amazing
1: thank you so much you guys
2: had such great questions
1: that was so interesting I loved it
0: well we will I'll send you